Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer, horror, and beyond. Joining me this week are filmmakers and actors Gary and Edmund Enton, who you might have seen in such films as Seconds Apart and the Rest Stop series. They're also responsible for the movies Geography Club, Sins of Our Youth, and My 11th. Welcome today, guys. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. I uh, like to start every interview with the same question, so I'm just going to put it out there to both of you. Why horror? What's your relationship with it? What draws you to the genre? However you choose to answer. Why horror? Right. Um, and I've thought about this question, and uh, and we were recently on your panel at uh, Comic-Con, and sort of my answer is, is sort of strange because I think it's um, it's a little abnormal. I, I feel like my musical theater background is almost responsible for my love of um, horror. Uh, certain characters, um, Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd, Norma Desmond from the musical who I was exposed to before the old black and white film. They sort of felt like uh, Carl Lemley Universal Monsters to me, something you could see in a Hammer horror film. It was sort of the melodrama, the camp, the -the over-the-top nature of those things that made it a really easy transition for me personally from musical theater to horror. Uh, It it was just kind of dramatic and over-the-top, and uh, and those were sort of the first horror films that I uh, gravitated towards. And like I said, I think it, it was just sort of an easy connection for me to make. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a couple of things that drew me to horror as as a child. I mean, there was certainly that, uh, you know, that guy that gets you into it. We had a guy that was practically our uncle who couldn't wait from a young age just to show us all the classics. Um, but then I had to really explore, like, what, why did we become so instantly obsessed? And I think it does kind of relate to my homosexuality. You know, growing up, you're sort of in... Well, I know, at least I was in the closet until I was 16, which, all things considered, actually isn't that late. Um, And there is this perpetual state of fear that you experience. Um, Am I going to come out? If I do come out, what are these people going to think? And the central characters in horror films are living in this sort of perpetual state of fear that on a sort of abstract level you relate to, especially growing up with this secret that you're hiding and this fear that you're experiencing that I think really um, had me into horror from a young age. Right. And I feel, by the way, like I related to horror films, especially in connection to my uh, sexual orientation in high school differently than I did when I was a kid. Um, I feel like especially slasher movies, the Friday the 13th series, uh, Sleepaway Camp, Scream, there's this sort of voyeuristic look at you know from the the killer's perspective of these couples that you're kind of estranged from in high school these you know homecoming king and queens all of these sort of kind of heterosexual tropes and stereotypes that you're not invited to be a part of so one it's sort of like a a backstage look at these guys lives and then I'm not saying it's cathartic to watch them get killed but it is sort of you relate to the guy that feels um, alienated from them and maybe buy them a little bit as well. Well, absolutely. I think that the, the ongoing discussion about the queer relationship with horror, as we've discussed, uh, for listeners who don't know, Edmund, Gary, and I are friends, and we get together frequently and do talk about these things off the air as well. Uh, we've discussed before, both on the panel at Comic-Con and just individually, how there is a connection to that sense of otherness that is embodied in the horror film that queer identifying people see because it is 
for all extents and purposes, the genre of the outsider. So when you draw this parallel of um, the punishment of the popular kid, especially with the Friday the 13th movies, you see these movies where it's always, you know, the kind of dumb jocks who get theirs. And uh, not that we're advocating that, but there is a catharsis to it because these movies are celebrating the, the outsider and they're showing the outsider triumph. They're showing the people who would normally put the outsider down are the ones who are being punished. Is that fair? Maybe not. Is it delicious to see? Absolutely. For me, and, often, and in often cases, these are the kinds of people that are punishing you on a day-to-day basis growing up. Not all. That's a cliche and a generalization, but there's that, you know. Even if it's indirectly, right? Yeah. Like, I was friends with total, like, I was friends with tons of people that were uh, athletic or on the, on the baseball team. And it, it's not even necessarily like the outward homophobia. It's just, oh, I'm not invited on the weekend, I suppose, to hang out and be a part of whatever that social scene is. Not that I would have wanted to, but is there is that sense that you didn't have the option. So um, I, I, I think that sort of starts that feeling of being on the outside and feeling that otherness. And would you say that is what draws a lot of queer people towards the genre. There is that seed of otherness that they recognize in the fiction that maybe they don't recognize in themselves initially right away? Or I wouldn't be surprised. I don't pretend to know what's in other people's sort of hearts and minds. Right. But I would say that it wouldn't shock me. I think on a very superficial level, sexuality is really present. And if you're repressed, you know, you're going to, take your fix wherever you can find it. Right. Um, again, I'm not saying that's why a homosexual specifically would, you know, gravitate towards a horror genre. I'm, I'm certain heterosexuals have sort of found an outlet in it for the same reasons. But um, as far as the otherness, as far as sort of the voyeuristic look at, at, at these other people, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked. That was sort of the reason for myself. So Interesting. I mean, it's certainly Skeet Ulrich and Matthew Lillard stabbing each other at the end of Scream. And there's a sexiness to that, right? Or is that just me? Am I imagining that? Oh, no. It's hot. <laughs> it's hot, right? Yeah. I mean, we could be so lucky in high school to find someone who liked us that much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the relationship of horror and musicals, because this is something that I've heard you bring up before. And I think while vastly different, those genres are very much the same in a way, too. So talk to me a little bit about that, because I know that you're very immersed in both of those worlds. Right. On a very technical level, the format and the rhythm of a musical is very similar to a horror film. I feel like the kill sequences in a horror film are basically the musical numbers, right? And a great kill sequence isn't just scary, it sort of forwards the plot, which is sort of what separates the wheat from the chaff in in, in a musical, right? It's like, in a book musical, the songs don't just have to have a good melody, they also have to be something that, like, advances the characters or advances the plot, and I feel really similar to that in a horror film, um, where you have your book scenes and then you have your sort of musical numbers. So, uh, I don't think, again, that was a connection I made, I don't think I I broke it down, but sort of the more I've I yeah, kind of digested a, it. There's, of I've, course, yeah. a heightened nature to both of those right. um, genres, musicals and horror. Yeah, no. That, I mean, yeah. that make them sort of very similar. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's melodrama. It's sort of camp. Um, it's extravagance. It's extravagance, and yeah. it's big. It's larger than life. You know, horror, 
feels I mean, I mean, again, there's a lot of subgenres of horror, but the ones that I was exposed to, especially as a kid, The Exorcist is larger than life. I mean, uh, and the characters in, in horror films are larger than the lives. They're icons, you know. Uh, Michael Myers is an icon. Freddy Krueger is an icon. And you can say the same thing of, of um, the great musical theater characters. Right. Curly in Oklahoma is an icon. They're very identifiable. Um, well, I've always maintained, and I, I say this without any sense of uh, sarcasm, that Freddy Krueger is a great Broadway character. He's a drag queen. He's Ethel Merman. He is yeah. the he is the, uh, the grand dame of, of, of serial slashers. Because if you watch the embodiment of how Robert England takes on that character, there is a theatricality to it that you couldn't sell in a non-genre picture. The way he walks, the way he moves, the way he sells everything, that's a acting for the back rows in the most delicious sort of way. And uh, now I kind of want to see Freddie in a musical number. I like that idea. Or just Freddie the musical. That's true. Well, and that was my next question. As, uh, as a duo that is very celebratory of the world of musical theater uh, and this discussion of the correlation between these two genres, if you two could make a horror property into a musical, what would it be? And that's always such a tricky question because I feel like it is so hard to adapt horror on stage. But of course, you must mention the great Sweeney Todd, which is of course, yeah, that's what the I'm saying. Example of Doing how right. to do it. Right. Um, hmm, let me think about this for a beat without just bullshitting you and saying the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> uh, well, while you're thinking about it, I've always wanted to see the Friday the Thirteenth musical. Where while the campers are singing, Jason enters and there's a big like crescendo where the light swoops to him and like you know he's gonna take the song and then he just stands there. We never have him sing. I love it. <laughs> you could do the same thing for a Halloween musical. True. You know, Mike Myers just never sings. Um, I don't know. Like you know, you've got uh, your William Finns who've written like a new brand of falsettos and they're sort of more intimate character pieces. So I would be interested to see someone like him do like the thing. You know what make a great musical? What? Is the movie Final Girls that came out a couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. I think there's a real heart to that story and especially if you're going to be adapting a horror film into a musical, there has to be that great character drama and I and I feel like that heart. Right. Um, At the core of it, it's a relationship between a, a, a mother and a, a daughter. Or, yeah. a, of a daughter who has lost her mother and is now experiencing her in this alternate universe um, in which she exists. And I feel like that that alone would, would help it yeah. tremendously. In, in and there's a million things too. Yeah. I'm already seeing them stepping into the musical, like the whole thing. Yeah, just visually, you're yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, there's like a million sort of... Um, now we're just going to brainstorm back and forth for the right. rest of the I know, this, this is just like completely caught me off guard. Cause well, the fun <laughs> thing about that <laughs> selection is it does bring us sort of full circle to uh, the reverence and the escapism of horror movies. Because for listeners who don't know, The Final Girls is a brilliant movie that was written by uh, Mark Fortin and Joshua John Miller and directed by Todd Shulson. And the movie is sort of a meta film about 80s slasher movies about a girl whose mom was an actor in a Friday the 13th kind of movie and she passes away and when the local theater does one of these like revival night screenings they invite her to come talk and they accidentally through some mystical means get sucked into the world of the film so it's both a horror movie and sort of a love letter to the genre and there is uh, a heightened extravagance to it there is a celebratory sense to it there is um, a very cheekily 
executed uh, wink of otherness. And um, it is a musical, in a way. It is. And there's this great relationship between the daughter and her mother, who exists as her character in these right. slasher films. So the meta nature of it, but also the sentimentality of it, is very fitting for, for musical theater. Because that whole movie is about something bigger, um, which a lot of horror films are, to be honest. Right. Now, you both have uh, been in a number of horror films, Mm -hmm. notably a movie called Seconds Apart, where you play, shockingly, creepy twins. What? (laughs) And uh, we discussed this at uh, the panel in San Diego uh, in front of a live audience, but I would like to ask you here on the air, what is it, do you think, as twins, that draws the horror genre to twins? And my answer at Comic-Con remains the same, simply stated twins are fucking creepy <laughs> um but also i think it's just the fear of the unknown you know most people aren't twins so uh but just yeah yeah and what i loved though about seconds apart um is the twins are used very differently than they're normally used in horror films normally they are more of a set piece for lack of a better word um because they're just sort of this creepy as fuck image to make you feel unnerved in the middle of a sequence where actually seconds apart really is about the relationship of what it means to be a twin and it really explores that and the characters are very separate and you really get into and the intensity of that relationship is sort of what drives the horror in that film it's sort of like the rumblings of everything sort of going on between them it's when twins essentially break up the horror that that would create, especially for Edmund. For me, a dream, for Gary, a horror, you know. Uh, um, no, and I'm really proud of, of that film because uh, I feel like it takes that, again, trope and that can be used sort of in a cheap way and kind of really kind of asks that question and then answers it. Right. Um, why are twin, twins creepy? And I think it's, it's not just the visual otherness, by the way, of being a twin. It's the relationship that, that people don't understand you are incredibly close with your twin um and in a way that that closeness there's something impenetrable about it yeah other people can't can't get into no matter how hard they try and i've you know um and so there's a mystery there's a mystery there i've heard from other twins before because you know uh when you are as incredibly close as gary and i are and as as most twins are because there's a bond there that it's 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 kind of intangible right it's not just unbreakable i can't put my finger on it um I've asked older twins, like, oh, you know, I'm excited to have a kid one day because I feel like I'll, you know, it'll be the one relationship where I'll, I'll have a, uh, even more of a bond. And I always sort of get this look and then this sort of explanation where this one woman said to me once, you know, I had a twin sister and she passed away. And uh, people used to ask, you know, if the ship was sinking, who would I say first, my children or my sister? And I used to always say, of course, my children. But you know what the reality was? It was my sister. And that freaked me the fuck out. And I think the texture of that relationship um, and that kind of bond um, is is scary, you know, because uh, you're just everybody else. The rest of the world is completely outside of it. Is so yeah. people who listen to this now, if yeah. they're ever on a boat with you two, are going to be like just a little nervous. Especially our future children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who will not be allowed to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Uh, that's a horror movie concept, though, I think, to see, you know, 
uh, twins only, even at the danger of their own children. Yeah. Yeah, there's something there. That's seconds apart, too. Two seconds, two apart. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it's it's there. It's just it's a it's a beautiful relationship. It's an intense relationship, and it's the kind of relationship that people don't uh, typically understand because it's impossible to unless you are a twin. And yeah. Now, as filmmakers, you have crossed several genres. Uh, you know, with Geography Club is a teen gay comedy, uh, dramedy, yeah. if you Coming will. Coming of age. Coming of age. Uh, the Sins of Our Youth is very much a, a hard-hitting drama. My 11th is, for all intents and purposes, a serial killer movie. What do you look for in creating content as filmmakers, and what's different about how you look for that as opposed to actors when you were taking on acting roles? Well, it's interesting, because Edmund and I really don't have one specific genre that we gravitate towards which sometimes does feel like a hindrance as far as furthering your career because people tend to remember the guys that made all those great horror movies or the guys that made all those great comedies or somebody with a signature style yeah or somebody with a signature style and then I tend to gravitate as generic as a sound towards stories that interest us and towards towards characters that interest us we, we tend to love characters that are three-dimensional and stories that are about these three-dimensional characters um but i think the one thing that if you've noticed it does sort of repeat thematically through our films is that the characters have a flaw that they're trying to overcome you know and there's that in geography club there's very much that in and sins of our youth um just sort of something complicated that we like to explore yeah something that's not easy to figure out it's it's usually you know what's interesting especially about making um, films with your twin brother and and sort of breaking the story is I feel like the process is working the best when we're disagreeing on something because we have such a shared experience of life and we tend to see things similarly. So when we we hit a roadblock and we get stuck in sort of a quagmire and we're forced to defend our ideas – that's when we sort of kind of unpack the complicated nature of the story or the character and we have to defend why we feel the way that we feel. And I think that... Um, it normally starts with the sort of the seed of something that we both think would make an interesting film. Right. And then I'll say, I think we should approach it from this angle. And Edmund will say, no, no, what about this angle, which normally is the opposite. And once we've finally talked about it over weeks, months, sometimes years, and sort of come to... An agreement, but really something that we're both really excited about of this concept, that's when we start writing it and developing it and trying to get it made. Yeah, and again, it could be a concept or a character because, you know, again, if we have a hard time understanding why a character would do the things that they've done or do the things that they want to do um, and we sort of have that discussion, that's sort of a compelling reason to start a story and and build it from from there. Right. So I guess the answer to your question is th- there really isn't a specific answer. Is like to is, or whether there's a certain kind of movie that right. we like to make because as you said they're all so different. True, but working across genres, then let's talk a little bit about responsibility. Okay. Last week when Jeffrey Reddick was here, he talked a little bit about some of the challenges that he had when he would attempt to incorporate LGBT characters into scripts. 
with Geography Club, which of course is a GLAD nominated film and an Outfest award winning feature, you were able to tackle LGBT issues head on. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the top of this conversation, we discussed you know the queer relationship and how sometimes having these uh, things in film help our audience. Do you feel as filmmakers a responsibility to include that kind of content in the work that you do? And how do you th- how do you navigate that working across different genres? Well, the simple answer to that question is yes, absolutely. Representation is a is a gigantic deal, um, but I don't think it's a conscious choice because I think that storytelling works the best when you're when you're sharing some sort of authentic piece of yourself. I don't know, understand, or can picture a universe without the gay experience in it because that's my only experience on this planet so uh as far as developing stories that um touch on lgbtq themes or include an lgbtq character it's just sort of very natural um sometimes in movies like uh geography club it's all about the social commentary but sometimes we're making a movie and we have an or we're developing a script and we have an ensemble um cast and um, one or two of our characters are gay, and it's not about that. They're just there, and it's not a what we would uh, think of as a gay film. It's just a film with gay characters um, because it, it's it's sort of our normal, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. And, you know, not all of our movies have uh, homosexual characters in it, but there's that's like Sins of Our Youth is a good example of that, but there's no particular reason. The story that my brother and I were obsessing over was – a concept that was birthed from this movie that we made when we were in high school, really before we were exploring who we were, and we were sort of trying to take that to its conclusion. And in that process, there wasn't a lot of inclusion to right. LGBT, but there wasn't a specific reason as right. as to why not. Yeah, but Sins of Our Youth is a socially conscious film. Completely, that that yeah. And for it's, I would it say is socially conscious. Yeah, for. Listeners who uh, are discovering your work for the first time, could you tell them a little bit what that movie is? Sure. So, Sins of Our Youth is uh, a story about four teenage boys who are getting drunk, they're at an arcade, and they decide to fire, uh, shoot off firearms recreationally. And in the process, they accidentally kill this 12 year old boy who's a a neighbor of, of one of the kids who happens upon the scene. And the way that they choose to deal with this, uh, is sort of conceived in a very hyperbolic way. It's, it's a plot device that's meant to be over the top and, quite frankly, as stupid as possible, which is sort of this manhunt idea. They're going to go around and, and, and kill themselves until there's one man standing, and that person will, they, you know, concoct some plot to get away with it. Of course, it never comes into fruition that way. And the whole movie was kind of conceived as a Greek tragedy. And the where it comes from, Gary was alluding well, so where to. Where it comes from is when we were, um, I think, 13 or 14, running around with a camera, making all kinds of movies, we kind of came up with this concept where these four boys, to get out of this accidental murder, you know, run around shooting each other, and sort of the last man standing, they had a plan to make sure he can get out of it. And it was really violent, and it was really like, but it was really kind of glorifying guns and killing and all that stuff. And we'd forgotten about this film until our mom sent us, like, we were in our early 20s, like, a box of VHSs of movies that we had made when we were kids. And it made us realize, before gun control, 
way before that, just how desensitized youth really is to violence because of the proliferation of, you know, just violence in the mainstream, whether it's video games or even how it's depicted in the news. You know, everything's sort of sensationalized. I mean, and everything is – violence isn't just sensationalized. It's branded, right? If there's a terrorist attack in Paris, I mean, nightly news on NBC, the Today Show, it's literally like – they rename the episode to Terror in Paris or Terror in Aurora. And it and it, it starts to divorce you from the reality of what's actually happened. And the coverage of it, too, starts to build many narratives. Who is your villain, the shooter? Who are your heroes, you know, sort of the victims or the ones that, you know. And so everything starts to play out like a film. So we wanted to take this sort of manhunt scheme that we came up with when we were kids and apply it to this same sort of story, but obviously in a much more socially aware way. Um, and yes, it is framed in the gun c- control debate because there's no way that it can't be. Um, and I mean, that's really the socially aware center of, of the film. Right. So, it, yeah. So again, it's not LGBTQ, but it is socially aware. But I think there is an interesting thread of um, outsiderness in the movie. Specifically, uh, in the character of uh, which actor, uh, Bridger. Bridger. Okay. Yeah. In uh, specifically in the case of Bridger's character, there is this kind of through line that he is going to go down and go down hard if they get arrested. Yeah. Because he doesn't sort of have the privileged life that the other boys have. Right. And uh, I think that. Queerness represented on film can manifest in different ways. I think that because we exist in the gay community, that's our first thought. But queerness can also represent that sense of otherness where you feel marginalized in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that what's interesting about Sins of Our Youth is that even if you didn't necessarily intend to focus on the outsider and the LGBT way, you still kind of highlighted issues that are very relevant to LGBT people because we know that when things go wrong, especially with certain authorities and certain types of individuals, it's going to be worse for us and it's going to be worse for minorities and it's going to be worse for women or X, Y, Z. Well, it's interesting. I forget who said it, the quote. I think it was Carl Foreman, the screenwriter, and I could be completely wrong, Um, but... the quote, anyway, says something to the effect of when you're writing a movie or for Gary and I, when you're developing a film, I think it applies in both scenarios, it's impossible not to write yourself in it somehow or your viewpoints in it somehow. So even you're, you're touching on something, I think, 100% And the David true. character who's played by Joel Courtney is really interesting. First of all, his, his sexuality is never specified. His arc has nothing to do with liking a girl, but he had big dreams. He wants to be a DJ, and, you know, at that age, Emin and I wanted to be filmmakers. And if something like this were to happen, it's the that sort of loss of all of those things that come along with the innocence of childhood, including big dreams. Yeah, and I think Bridger's character, the one that ends up killing himself, he bears the responsibility of it because I think he understands the stakes. And what's interesting is the other ones come from privileged families, but you never see their parents in the film, and that's very intentional because right. they're distant. The only one that you see is Ali Sheedy, who is incredibly flawed. Um, she's, you know, she's turned her back on religion, which that that's not a flaw or 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 um, or I don't know or or an it's advantage. Not right. It's yeah. not wrong. It's not right. It's not wrong. But she's an alcoholic and she has her demons, yet she's an incredibly attentive mother and a very nurturing mother. And I think um, all of that makes him more 
sort of um, he's got the strongest moral center, which is why ultimately he kills himself. Right. It's because he cannot live with what he's done. And I would say the same thing of David as well. Yeah. Yeah. They both do. Yeah, so. Well, for those of you out there who are curious about the film, it is available on VOD platforms. And uh, I highly recommend it. As uh, Gary and Edmund said, it features a marvelous cast. uh, Super 8's Joel Courtney. Ali Sheedy's ferocious in it. Uh, (laughs) And, of course, MacGyver, Lucas Till. uh, Star of Monster Trucks, Lucas Till. (laughs) Fair enough. Goodness. And he did a vampire movie, didn't he? Yeah. I I would see Lucas in a vampire movie. He's in one. With Carl Drogo from Game of Thrones. That's his real name, Carl Drogo. Well, your Game yeah. of Thrones, that's your real name. <laughs> so we spent some time talking about uh, Sins of Our Youth, which is a film that you made. But I know that you both are voracious film watchers as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious uh, to hear what you would recommend that people watch that's out there that maybe exists in a queer space or a horror space or just something that you really think is relevant to these wild and wooly times we're living in. Well, I'm going to go with relevant first and then I'll think of sort of my because um, my answer is sort of like what's the best film that deals with LGBTQ subjects. For, for me, and I think maybe even for Gary, it's Hedwig and the Angry Inch. It's the first thing that comes to mind. Gary has it. I literally have a symbol of Origins of Love tattooed on, on my forearm. Um, as far as relevant to these times where where the horror genre is concerned, um, I would say The Thing, and also paired with uh, Monsters Do on Maple Street, the original uh, Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone yeah. episode. Because um, even though I think they're referencing the Red Scare and, and, and sort of the communist, communist backlash and blacklisting in, in Hollywood, um, that is sort of what's going on now. There is a deep set fear and paranoia uh, for so many different reasons. I mean, the divisiveness of this administration probably being the most relevant. Um, but there is sort of this question of who can I trust and can I even trust my own neighbor? And I feel like um, those two things, the Monsters on Maple Street and The Thing, um, really sort of portray that accurately and um, effectively. I'm actually going to go with gentleman's agreement because, I mean, it really – it encompasses anybody who feels like an outsider and really explores what it's like to be persecuted or on the outside and through a central character who isn't but decides to – Go through the journey of, of I'm, feeling. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say, and, and walk in someone else's shoes. And walk in someone else's shoes. Um, so that would be my suggestion. Well, Edmund, I know that you uh, tend to do a lot of political podcasts, and you have a very strong political opinion and presence on the internet. <laughs> uh, when discussing horror, especially kind of the '80s horror heyday. There is, for a lot of viewers and historians, a direct correlation to the Reagan-era administration and how they were dealing with things at time and the rise of the genre in reaction to that, mm-hmm. even subtle things that uh, you know maybe don't look like reflection actually are. Looking at kind of the tumultuous political landscape that we exist in right now, what do you think horror is going to look like in a Trump America? I think we're already starting to see it, and I think there are two sides of it. I think something like Get Out or Detroit are socially aware thrillers, right. horror films, because sometimes horror can just be what's going on in the world. Um, 
And so I think you're going to see a lot of that uh, horror films with a socially aware bent, you know. Um, but again, to reference musical theater and bring it all the way back full circle, uh, when Oklahoma was written, part of it, part of the agenda was it was sort of a morale boosting part of the war effort. And so I think in troubled times, you see a lot of escapism. So whether it's reflected in the horror genre, I think we'll get away from torture horror. I think we'll get away from um, Romero-type zombie films. And you'll start seeing a lot of kind of zombie lands or, you know, Gary and I's favorite, Slither, which is, you know, the James Gunn masterpiece. That was going to be my reaction was I think we're going to start seeing just more horror films that really go – for the entertain, entertainment value because every day you turn on the news is a horror film. We don't, I don't need to watch a horror film anymore to be terrified, you know, especially given this current administration. So, yeah, I want to <laughs> see things that, that are just a little bit lighter as far as horror goes. That would be my reaction anyway as a filmmaker to what I'd want to make as far as the horror genre goes. Um, to give people something to go put them on a roller coaster ride you know when you see a great horror film you're on a roller coaster ride because you're scared and then you're not and then you're tense again and then you're scared and let people leave the theater feeling thrilled you know right um because it's not very thrilling to just even exist right now <laughs> with the umbrella of this or this dark shadow that this administration is cast over us cast all. over us all <laughs> I like that uh, Slither being a good litmus because we would rather alien slugs than current politics. I, I would prefer I'm not that sure world that we to the don't world. Don't have <laughs> alien slugs. No, because they got shit done. Uh, it's just a full disclosure, right, by the way. We are obsessed with Slither. So, like four times in theater theaters, we host Slither nights. Like that's sort of our main jam. It's a marvelous film, uh, yes. written and directed by James Gunn, genius, the guardian of the galaxy Marvel, himself. This film. Yes, a marvelous Let's not film. Exclude Marvel. <laughs> well, I want to. I want to bring up a, a point because you mentioned Get Out, which of course is fantastic and a social commentary piece. Mm-hmm. But you both know as well as I do that movies do not happen overnight, and that movie was well into production, probably in development for a long time, long before Donald Trump got elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think it would have been powerful because the racial commentary and the social commentary, administration aside. It exists for a reason. Mm-hmm. But just theoretically, how does Get Out play in Hillary's America? I think the same way. Yeah, because... I think, it, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think even just because Barack Obama was president didn't mean that all of that just went away. It still existed. And that was a major problem that... Just like when gay marriage got passed, suddenly everyone starts to act as if, well, now the civil rights movement of LGBTQ or or African Americans like suddenly they don't exist anymore because gay marriage is legal and Barack Obama is president but they do right racism and institutionalized racism racism didn't happen overnight i mean you go back to Reagan even as far as uh how he connects to Donald Trump, the law and order president. You know what I mean? And, you know, I'm a huge Hillary Clinton fan, but I'm not sure she's much better. I don't think she's as extreme as him, right? I don't think she brings in Jeff Sessions, but she supported Bill's proposal for, you know, uh, the the sort of what we know now is kind of the drug crackdown or whatever. And uh, I think, you know, it wouldn't have been dramatically different in, in, in that arena. And I think that movie would have been as relevant as timely and as important as it is right now, regardless of Trump or Clinton. And I'm her hugest supporter. Hugely. 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 Bigly. Big League? What does he say? I don't even know. I don't listen to him. (laughs) He's muted on my Twitter. 
Uh, I, I was actually hoping I would get blocked at some point, but you know, who knows? <laughs> Slither. Have you seen Have you seen Night of the Creeps? It's a 1980s horror film that also deals with alien slugs. No. <laughs> Highly recommended, uh, mostly due to the fact that it feels like a John Hughes movie with zombies. It's uh, kitschy and 80s, and there's a little gayness to it. And I'm uh, sure you own it, right? I do own it. So you can let me borrow it. Yes, you can, okay, cool. you can borrow it. I need my copy of Slaughter High back. I'm putting this out to all of our listeners <laughs> that you borrowed that a year ago, and I still don't have it back. <laughs> this is true. He just put Edmund on blast. I know. Because that had nothing to do with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can watch it before he gives it back. Well, I will. Okay. I didn't even realize we had it until just now. So, um, tell me, what are you working on next? We are working on a couple of things. It's weird, you know, we, we've we always sort of, what, what's interesting is, A, we've always been sort of close to the vest in, in terms of certain things because um, we don't like to sort of talk about what we're doing. We kind of like to talk about it after we've done it. Right. Um, but we have a movie uh, called Citrus County based off of a book that we got the option on. Of the same name. Of the same name um, that we're working really hard, hopefully to be in production by um, spring. Um I think we're sort of we're close. It feels close in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, and that's um, that's a character drama that's set in Citrus County, Florida, which is sort of like backwoodsy Florida, and um, and I feel like that will be a really relevant movie. You know, it, it's kind of set in Trump country, even though it isn't political. Um, so we have that. Um, we're developing a pilot based off of the film Geography Club that we don't sort of have a home for yet, but we'd like to see one. Uh, we're actually working on a web series, which is a passion project yeah. that deals with these sisters who opened this community theater. And community theater was a huge part of our childhood. Right. So we're excited to get into that world. and really taking our time at that because we want to make sure it's as authentic to yeah. that universe as possible. It's sort of somewhere between the comeback and sort of waiting for Guffman. And there's also this amazing filmmaker who's made movies like, I think his name is Jock Anderson, and now I'm forgetting it because I'm on the spot. But he made the movie um, Pigeon. Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. It's sort of esoteric and really dry. Roy Anderson. Sorry. Completely. Uh, I was close. You know, I, of, I'm I was a, halfway there. I'm a Roy <laughs> um, Anderson fan. Uh, I saw Songs from the Second Floor when I was yeah, in college. And um, it definitely—he feels like Ingmar Bergman, as done by Monty Python. In fact, I think I stole that quote from another reviewer. But, but that's exactly—that's yeah. the perfect way to articulate his films. Um, I've seen that film as well, and we love him. So it's sort of—it's community theater through that lens. Is basically long story short. So those are the three I think most. Those are the major things. things you yeah. know, we finally—when I was referencing earlier how there's sometimes ideas that we don't agree upon for a while. We've had one for a year that we finally okay. both found a way into that we love that. Oh. We'll start writing. Soon. And there is a Rogers and Hammerstein biopic that we've written that we are trying to sell. So any buyers out there? <laughs> I love that you're listening. I love that we keep coming back to musicals. Yeah. Uh, I happen to know that you both are big fans of the Mick Garris television adaptation of The Stand. That's my third tattoo. <laughs> it's not from the McGarris adaptation specifically. It's the cover art from the um, the original cover art from the book. But. Oh, man. And I never go up to celebrities. And I was at a yogurt land in Studio City. And I saw a guy with, you know, a shock of white hair walk in wearing a denim jacket that said the stand on it. And I couldn't pull up my phone fast enough to figure out whether it was McGarris because, quite frankly, who else would be wearing that jacket? And it was him, but it was too late. And I would have gone up to him and been like... I'm obsessed. I don't. I don't. I couldn't <laughs> tell you how many times we've seen it, and the number fifty could be 
a, a tinier number than yeah. the actual amount of times that, we, that, that we've watched all four parts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you've read the book as well. well the book, yeah. well, I'm a huge – we're both huge Stephen King fans. The book is – my all-time favorite Stephen King book, and one of my all-time favorite books, of course, the extended version, not the original um, print, which was significantly shorter. Um, it's just such a great story of good and evil. Um, I don't think there is a better story of good and evil than The Stand. And, you know, McGarris's miniseries in the 90s really captures the feeling you get when you're reading that book. I don't know if there'll ever be a better Mother Abigail than Ruby D. I don't think it's possible. Um, and what's interesting is this is sort of a family favorite as well. I joke that Gary's tattoo, which is the, the cover art from the stand, is the Enton family crest. Um, and I think it's one of those things in a weird way like Lord of the Rings where it's the perfect amalgam of drama, comedy, horror. It's sort of every genre in one. But it's got a great moral compass. And at the, at the center of it is morality. You know, that's why it's the Enton family crest because, we, you know, we're a family that's, you know, was always taught to do Sort of the right thing. You know, the difference between right and wrong, and yet there's also a darkness to our family. Right, right. You but know? you also learn about yourself in the face of adversity, and there's no greater adversity than the end of the world, right? So you see all of these characters reconciling their true natures, and I think that's something we all do on a daily basis. And I think, again, that story, it's like I could go on and on and on because – there's just so much to unpack with the stand, um, but I think it's 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 there should a be a biblical, separate podcast you know. where the stand is only discussed every episode, <laughs> and we can invite Rob Burnett, who can definitely contribute to this conversation. <laughs> I think what's interesting about Stephen King, and that he doesn't necessarily always get enough credit for, is that it's not even that horror is his strong suit; it's the curation of characters. Because when he mm-hmm. introduces a character, you know that person, you knew that gossipy woman in your small town. You knew the guy, the politician who was too big for his britches. We all, there's there's an Americana that rings true to his work. And uh, I think that Mick Garris really tapped into that in the mm-hmm. miniseries. Uh, this year alone, we're seeing sort of a new rush on Stephen King adaptations. The Dark Tower just came out, it's on its way. As filmmakers and fans of his work, we... I want to know, because over the years, we've seen many successful Stephen King adaptations and some not so successful. If you as filmmakers had to tackle a Stephen King project, what is it that you think makes a Stephen King adaptation successful? And what book would you want to do? Well, before, because I think it's really poignant what you said, like the Americana and the curation of characters. What makes Stephen King, I think, so palatable is it's like looking at a Norman Rockwell painting in a funhouse mirror. And so it's it's sort of everything you recognize but just slightly askew and probably more authentic. Yeah, because, I was going to say more realistic yeah, than exactly, you yeah. know, the, the realities of the world. Yeah. I mean my dream, our dream is The Stand. I mean there really is no other – You know, I know they've been trying to get those major motion pictures made for years and I hope that by the time we're big enough it still exists uh, for us to do it. But I, I have to, to actually jump on to what you were saying as far as the curation of characters and how they're portrayed. That is the most important part of a Stephen King story. You know, The Stand isn't a great visual effects movie. It isn't. You know, the drama really comes in, in the, the choices these characters are making. And quite frankly, the miniseries, you know, was so perfectly cast and those actors were so perfectly directed by Mick Garris. Um I felt they were true to to the novel, and and it's and it's funny to talk about this. I actually um, reread The Shining 
recently and went back and watched both movies, his, McGarris's, and, and Stanley Kubrick's, and for the first time, sort of divorcing myself from the film fan that I am, who was always like, well, Kubrick's is genius, and it does have genius in it, I really sympathized with Stephen King. The Shining novel is far superior than the Kubrick movie, and there are things that McGarris gets so much that does so much better in his um, adaptation of The Shining than I feel Kubrick did. And, and essentially the character of Jack Torrance, who is struggling with alcoholism, is trying to win his family back. He has these inner demons that he's over, trying to overcome that are just exasperated by the situation, really the metaphor that is the Overlook Hotel. But he's, he's a good guy at heart. Mm-hmm. And Kubrick's... The Shining, really, he's kind of a crazy person from the very beginning. It's the same problem, in my opinion, with the Dead Zone film starring Christopher Walken, who's a brilliant actor. But what Gary's saying, and I agree with him, is, you know, the beauty of a Stephen King novel is sort of a normal person in an abnormal situation or with abnormal powers. And so if you immediately just project the crazy or 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 um, the magic, you know, it it falls apart. I actually didn't enjoy watching the Kubrick Shining this for all the genius that's in it that I can still recognize and watching Steven Weber play Jack Torrance I felt way more comfortable and, right. and found myself enjoying, yeah, yeah and I just found myself enjoying it more than, than and, and rewatching them back to back I actually really like Rebecca De Mornay as Wendy as well I think she's oh, yeah. uh, really great I think the thing about Kubrick is that he is a filmmaker who excels in isolation his movies are not movies about Characters. There are mm-hmm. character. There, there are movies about human isolation and coldness, and it's true across yes. the board. All of his movies show a character slowly being removed. Mm-hmm. And although, in theory and kind of in execution, that's what The Shining is about. What you still need is that human relatability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't really. You're right. He's crazy from the get go, and we never really feel that we relate to him because Kubrick's not about relation and he is an artist he's a master I mean mean, of course it's beautiful but I think that what Stephen King is sacred to me and so and and more sacred to me now than he was when I first was getting into Kubrick uh, for some reason the book Kubrick should have made instead was Ender's Game he would have been the perfect guy to make that book I think and you know look Emin and I have adapted a novel, Geography Club. Our movie has its changes. Some fans of the novel aren't pleased with the changes that we've made. Um, of course, we try to be as respectful to the novel as possible and have a good relationship with Brett Hartinger, who wrote it. Um, but people aren't always okay with changes, and so I, you know, I, I own that. Right. Um, but I think that we try to stay true to the fundamental nature of these characters in that story. And when you talk about character, I think that Jack. Nicholson's portrayal, or, or what Kubrick had him portray, is a um, really is sort of divorced from. It's a betrayal from from the Jack Torrance in the book, you know. And so it just sort of feels like a different story entirely because of that. There are only really three central characters, well, four, but really you're with for the most part the nuclear three. family, yeah, yeah, well, the entire time in the hotel, yeah, the hotel itself is a character, is a character. Sure, yeah. New York's a character. Uh, so to to depart the world of Stephen King, I'm going to ask you both, and you can you can either choose film or novel. Recommend me a Stephen King property that is not The Stand. Tell me why. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I need to think on this. 
That's okay. That's what so editing's it's for. film or novel. Yeah, it, and it could be a movie that you don't, uh, that the world maybe doesn't like, but you do. Well, I mean, it's with Stephen King. There's so many amazing adaptations that the world does like. I mean, the first two things that come to mind for me are Stand By Me and Shawshank Redemption, which aren't even necessarily horror. They have their horror elements and they have their magical realism, but they're not necessarily horror. I would say for anybody listening to the podcast who hasn't seen those films, A, you should be arrested. Um, <laughs> but B, when you get out of prison, the first thing you should do is watch those those movies. Maybe watch Stand By Me first when you get out of prison because I feel Shawshank's going to hit a little close to home. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. I would like to see Under the Dome made into a film. I thought there was a lot of good in the TV series, but because it was a television series, they had to do a lot of things. They had to really vary um, from a lot of... of parts of the book and I know it's not his greatest novel level or blah 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 but I actually really enjoyed so much of that and I think that it deserves to be made into a film that's closer to what the book was yeah I mean more resources for a story like that which is so large you know just even on a superficial special effects level I'd like to see that yeah. fully realized um, it's, uh, it's so hard like There are certain things like, you know, I'd like to see remakes of as well. Like I, I could see like three or four more Shining remakes. Like I'm I'm happy to constantly, you know. Um, this new It movie coming out looks like it just nailed it. You know, I, I would have said it would have been my answer before just the trailers of these films because, you know, the, that miniseries in the 90s is just really not my favorite. It's so much cornier than the book is which is truly terrifying it's like really the ultimate horror and the tone just from the clips that have been released so far how about this too like right he's written so many short stories right why not instead of bringing back other anthology series just do an anthology series of Stephen King shorts whether it's a season of television or whether it's like five or six filmmakers all doing their own take on a Stephen King short story that would be really cool I mean, there's, like, right, pick there's, one and have yeah. six different filmmakers do their version the of it. The well is deep. It is. I mean, there are hundreds of shorts. He's written five while we've been on the show. Uh, what's interesting about it and bringing it full circle to the theme of this series is that when you look at the novel, it in its way is one of Stephen King's queerest because it has to do a lot with you know the the lack your identity and your emerging identity and the loss of innocence and there is a whole chapter in that novel about a kid who is gay bashed and the town looks away and that's a very difficult chapter that people when discussing the novel tend to not look at and uh i think that it goes back to the full circle of king's ability to write characters you know and whether we realized it growing up with him as a author or a this zeitgeist person, he wrote about everybody, mm-hmm. even queer kids, and that's uh, that's super cool. Yeah, I, I did tweet him after I got my tattoo, hoping he'd say "great tattoo, man" or like <laughs> "really dig it." Is that how you think he sounds? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, not really. <laughs> he and J.K. Rowling are like yeah. too busy, like well, yeah. J.K. Rowling, by the, the way, rebellion. His yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitter feed is fantastic. Yeah. Again, we're gigantic. Uh, Harry Potter fans and I'd like to believe that J.K. Rowling's reference to the Bogarts and that whole thing in Harry Potter is a wink and a nod to it because I feel like do you, do you remember what she, I'm talking about specifically yeah 
you know, um, the thing they have to practice their Patronus on is this thing called a Bogart, which it comes out of a cabinet, and it basically represents the thing you, you're, you're scared of the most, and it's usually something internal. Um, Here's what's depressing, yeah. by the way, is that even though I, I, I'm a huge fan of Stranger Things, it is it, you know? <laughs> and now the It trailer started to be released, and I hear, you know, kids in the theaters being like, man, that's just a ripoff of Stranger Things. Drives me nuts. Right. And I'm like, no, no, it's the other way around. They could both be good, because they both <laughs> right. are good, but it is the other way around. Well, the genesis of the project is the Duffer Brothers yeah. wanted it, and when they didn't get it they they, it. they went and created this other thing that tonally and thematically because that was the, what their headspace was yeah. i'm kind of into this world right now where filmmakers don't get what they want and then they go and make it anyway because that's how we got stranger things guillermo del toro recently tried to make uh, a new version of creature from the black lagoon and he didn't get it and now there's that yeah, shape that, shape, uh, of water. shape of water yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah. looks fantastic also, he was supposed to make Haunted Mansion. I'm not sure what the details of that situation were, but I, I've, I've heard, maybe I'm completely wrong, that Crimson Peak was sort of like, hey, I was already kind of developing Haunted Mansion, and that was sort of his reaction to not doing that film. And I really think the visuals in Crimson Peak are some of the most stunning I've seen in like recent memory. It, it, that movie is so underrated, it's beyond me. It, uh, it, it reminded me of Dark Shadows. I mean, the show, not, yeah. the, not the Tim Burton movie. Um, and I know you well enough to know that you were not referencing that Tim Burton movie. <laughs> no, I, I go straight up gothic with these things. Um, well, I think that we have covered a lot of ground today and our, our time is ticking down. Uh, do you have any final film recommendations for our listeners out there before we I could just list my favorite films of all time. If you'd like. Okay. I mean, do they have to be horror? Or do they have to be? Wait, I'd like them to be horror. Oh, you'd like them to be horror. Um, but when have you ever done what I liked? <laughs> I, uh, I have a million film recommendations, and, and uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I feel like all, I mean, I just want to reference all the classics, but I, I just assume that anybody listening to this particular podcast like heard. has seen the original Halloween, John Carpenter, you know, like has seen the ones that are worth recommending. Well, watch them again. Well, there's a million that are yeah. worth Even recommending. Like, you know, you know what? Here, how about this? It's an old black and white film called The Night of the Hunter. That's a horror film. It's yes. a suspense film. It's a thriller film. If you haven't seen it, it's Robert Mitchum. It's Lillian Gish, and it's Shelley Winters, and it's absolutely brilliant. And it's a, and it's one of the most suspenseful movies. I don't care what time period it was made. That would be the movie I recommend. And I'll go for Slither because even though we talked about it, <laughs> I don't think that everybody listening to this podcast has necessarily seen it, and they should. Slither's a remarkable film, it is. and I agree that Night of the Hunter is marvelously suspenseful. Did I just say marvelous twice? Yes. Yeah. Every single time I say Slither, Marvel comes out of your mouth. That's true. Um, <laughs> I uh, personal personally, I, what I love about Slither is that James Gunn, who had made that movie out, out after graduating the Trauma School of Filmmaking, really took uh, his knowledge of gross-out horror and gave it to a mainstream audience. And because Elizabeth Banks was in it, people were like, sure, we'll see this. <laughs> and that's great. Like, you know, there's a, a man who's filled with pus, like Jabba the Hutting out. And I just love the idea that, like, millions of people went to the multiplex and shoveled popcorn into their face. for a possum to eat. She's so hungry. <laughs> I've never been so hungry. Can you hand me that possum over there? <laughs> it's not Elizabeth Banks, but... But, uh... I do think that these are all great film recommendations. Of course, the films I'm going to recommend today are Seconds Apart in the Rest Stop Ooh. series. And Sins of Our Youth. And the Sins of Our Youth and Geography Club and all of the films that 
Gary and Edmund have participated in. I uh, am so happy that you guys came on today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank this was you a lot for of having fun. us. Thank you, listeners. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and available for listening at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other fine listening locations. You can also download the Reverie app for queer-rated content wherever you may be and whatever you may haunt. Thank you.